Greetings and salutations, listeners. Good to have you with us. This is Life in Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, joined with Justin Taylor. Colin is out and about, uh, mourning the Wildcats' defeat, the Hands of Duke, perhaps uh, lighting a candle for the rest of Alabama's season since they almost lost to Florida. But we do have two-thirds of the Three Musketeers here. And good to be back with you after a, a, a few weeks off. The schedule, hopefully, for the rest of this year is to release a new episode about every other week. So good to be with you here. And uh, you can subscribe, hopefully, and get these uh, at least twice a month. That at least keeps us sane. And if you're hanging on our every episode, then you need to listen to some other podcasts. No, glad to have you with us and glad to have you listening and glad to have Crossway sponsoring Life and Books and Everything. Uh, Ray Ortland's new book. It has a very uh, Ray sort of title. It's good. The Death of Porn. And uh, Justin, what is Ray talking about? What's he trying to do in this book? Is it is it just, uh, I don't want to say just another, but my impression is it's more than a sexual purity book. It's that, but there's other elements to it. Yeah, I think that's right. It Obviously, sexual purity is at the heart of it, but Ray is writing to men in particular, and with his fatherly voice addressing the next generation and calling men to be uh, noble men, to recognize who they are created to be. And uh, I think one way to put it is that this is not just a book for individuals, but Ray really wants, by God's grace, to start a movement to eradicate this great evil, the social injustice that uh, ruins men's lives, ruins families, uh, ruins, ruins sexuality. So that's what he's calling us to do, and a uh, few people I'd rather have doing it than Ray Orland. Yep. So check out that book. Justin and I are going to start with, this is the part of, there's two kinds of LBE listeners. There's the group that says, please talk more sports banter. That's a very small group, I, I think. And then there's everyone else. I'm hitting the 30 seconds ahead, 30 seconds ahead, get done with this. So, okay, you can hit that a couple of times. But this is a big week for our friendship, Justin. Because Nebraska travels to East Lansing to take on the Spartans, who are surprisingly looking good this year, 3-0, and up to uh, 20 or 21 in the latest rankings. How are you feeling? Nebraska put up a, a, a better-than-expected showing against the Sooners. Yeah, I think Scott Frost, the coach, said we are good enough to be anybody in the nation, and we are not good enough to lose each week to anybody. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's pretty much true, and... You just want things finally to break Nebraska's way, but it hasn't done it so far. But I, I do think it was a better than expected showing. You know your team's not elite when you're praying that you're not completely blown out and embarrassed. And, and were you praying? Were you actually praying that, Justin? I, I did pray a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, if you just want to be gracious, and I, I don't know theologically how to work that out. If, uh, but I, I think well, the Lord tells us to pray about all things, so. They weren't yeah. long extended prayers. There was no fasting, but uh, there, there were a couple of prayers. Do you ever pray for Sparty? Um, 
So yeah, Sparty for college and then all Chicago teams for pro. I have prayed with my kids. I've stopped short of praying for dubs. Uh, I've prayed that people would do their best. Nobody would get hurt. No injuries. They would, yeah, they would glorify God. Good but sport. yeah, certainly in my in my heart, there's been, okay, Lord, you can sort this out. It's probably not theologically justified, but um, you want to make people like me feel blessed. Here's Here's how you could do it. Yeah, so we'll. So, we'll... Uh, Michigan State and Nebraska is the only uh, football game we've seen together in person. Yeah, you came, and uh, was it just you? Or was Malachi with you? Malachi was with me. Yeah, and, and... you wanted to leave early. And uh, this Nebraska... was a crazy game because <laughs> Michigan State was way ahead the whole game, and uh, like by three touchdowns or something. And we were trying to beat the the rush of getting out of there, and it was a night game, and I had church the next morning. And then on our walking away, we're stopping, looking into bars, because Nebraska just kept scoring and almost came back a miraculous crumble on the part of the Spartans, almost. So I left the game early in one of the, the epic comebacks of all time. Came down to a final play that we watched through a window. <laughs> yes, I remember. And I was about ready for my evening, which was just going swimmingly, to. Like, I'm not spiritual enough to, to to have to get up and preach tomorrow now. All right, so we'll be texting during the, the game, 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock sometime. Yeah. I think. Okay. Central. From the... Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back. Now we are talking about other issues besides sports, but we should just do a whole sports podcast, of course. <laughs> In recent weeks, Texas passed an abortion law, a restrictive abortion law. And I use restrictive in the good sense because restricting the killing of human life is a very good thing. The Supreme Court has not ruled on that case. They have a Mississippi case, which many people are suspecting, hoping, praying, others fearing that would strike down Roe. But what the Supreme Court did in this Texas case was decided not to intervene, not to, uh, they, they allowed the law to go into effect. And so that sent some people into apoplectic shock and concern. And of course, if it comes from Texas or Florida, that just adds to the, I can't believe Texas and Florida are doing that. But as those uh, who hold to the Christian view that all of life, innocent life, should be protected, we see it as a good thing. But I want to use that to talk for a little bit about abortion. And uh, I'll start here. We'll get to some resources and some apologetic angles. But I wonder if you have this sense, Justin, that I have. I have. Here's the pessimist in me coming out. I have this pessimistic thought that if the court strikes down Roe, now that would be, hopefully they will, and Christians have been, and conservative legal scholars have been working toward that end, and almost, you know, even liberals uh, will agree that as a piece of constitutional law, it's vacuous, even if you think that abortion should be legal at every stage 
of a pregnancy as a piece of constitutional law, it has no basis in the Constitution. So if Roe is struck down, the pessimistic side of me sees that many Christians who now are and have been very supportive of pro-life and, and Roe is bad might suddenly turn now that they are seen as the victors and say, oh, uh, I don't know, this maybe we should have, you know, a number of laws. Maybe that we, we don't want to go too extreme and we'll backpedal if there's a victory and if the the cultural eye is squarely focused on the pro-life cause that some Christians will flinch and say, mm, oh, I, oh, we, we won this and now um, I need to sort of apologize for it. Am I being too pessimistic? Yeah, I think so. Um, but you Good. might, <laughs> you might well, be right. Correct me then. No, I, I hadn't thought of that angle. I think that my concern is more that there's the, the engaged pro-life activist who's reading stuff every day, reading books on this, thinking about this, debating on it. I think the the general Christian is concerned about it, and the big bullseye is take down Roe. And right. once Roe goes, if it goes, Lord willing, then I think complacency is probably more likely than backpedaling or apologizing or anything like that. So the focus then really shifts to the state legislatures and laws at that level. And I just wonder how many Christians will be energized kind of at the state level. I think the way that life is supposed to work is that we're supposed to be more energized and more involved the, the closer the concentric circle is to us. And it expands out to the national level. And yet the way that media is incentivized, we, we do sort of just the opposite. We, we spend most of our time thinking about the national level and very little thinking uh, as it comes closer into us, into our state politics and, and local politics and the like. I'm sure you've read these similar uh, articles and you see the polling on Roe. And on the one hand, if you just ask the American public, do you want Roe to be overturned? A fairly strong majority says no. But then if you ask people what Roe actually does, and you say, well, do you want this? Do you think that abortion should be legal at every point of a pregnancy? Then pretty strong majorities don't. So it, it shows, among other things, that most people don't really know what Roe is. And that shouldn't be surprising. Most people don't know what it's going to be in any Supreme Court decision, even one as famous as Roe. And most people on the street probably will interpret the invalidating of Roe, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, as abortion is now banned across the country. And that's not what the overturn of Roe, that may be what we hope state legislatures will do, but as you just pointed out, Justin, it then allows for a democratic process for actual laws to determine in actual jurisdictions what they want the law to be rather than manufacturing out of thin air a constitutional right to something that no one thinks was uh, intrinsic to the founder's original vision. So I do hope that Roe is overturned. Uh, first things, the latest issue had a, a series of articles, Roe Must Go, and has from a number of different scholars and angles. And Robbie George 
goes out and he says, I'm going to predict 6-3 that Roe is going to be overturned. And if it isn't, he thinks it's a catastrophic loss. And not not only of human life, of course, that's most important, but he says of the whole you know, conservative legal constitutional movement, or if the Supreme Court tries to find a middle ground, and he argues convincingly, there really is no legal ground with this Mississippi law and with Roe, uh, that they're they're utterly incompatible. And if the Mississippi law can be upheld, then then Roe must go. So that that is coming, but we don't have to be constitutional scholars here on life and books and everything, though we fancy ourselves as as such. But we want to think Christianly. Justin, how would you you got you know, a minute or two with someone who's genuinely seems open to persuasion, if any of those people exist, do you have a quick back-of-the-envelope apologetic for pro-life? Yeah, I think that uh, I've really been influenced by Scott Klusendorf, who mm-hmm. wrote a book for Crossway, The Case for Life, and uh, we're going to do a second edition of it that'll come out at the end of 2022. But Scott does a wonderful job. You can probably find on YouTube his, you know, one minute apologetic for uh, pro-life. And he really wants to focus the issue. And this is what I would try to do in a conversation. If he gave me 60 seconds on an elevator and somebody said, hey, I'd love to talk about abortion with you. Um, the, the number one issue is what is it? I mean, I think it was Greg Coco said, you know, my, when my kids yelled to me, hey, dad, can I kill this? Everything depends on, well, what is it? Is it a cockroach or is it the, the puppy from next door? What, what it is determines what you can do with it. So the number one question is, what are we talking about? What, what is this? And it is a human life. And that's the, the scientific answer. I mean, we, we have science on our side in terms of this is a human being. It's an undeveloped human being, but it's a full organism that is developing according to its own processes. And so Klusendorf just, he's got a little acronym, SLED, S-L-E-D, and says there's only really four possible differences between uh, a a baby in the womb, call it a fetus, whatever, and a a newborn baby. That's size, one's bigger than the other. There's level of development, one's more developed than the other. There's environment, they're they're located in different places. And then there's degree of dependency. The, The baby inside the womb is more dependent than the baby outside of the womb. And the, the point of that is all four of those things, none of them are morally relevant uh, in determining what something is and whether it has a right to life. You're, you're not, you don't have a greater right to life based on your size. You don't have a greater right to life to, um, based upon your dependency. I mean, somebody on a kidney dialysis machine who is dependent on that to live is not uh, less worthy of life or has less of a right to life. So that would be one angle to come at it, just focusing the issue on what it is. So you could talk about all of these things about economics, and those are important issues, and uh, the mother. But that question is, what is it that we're talking about killing? So we want, I think the abortion debates thrives in euphemism. Mm -hmm. Talk about being pro-choice. I like choice. A choice to do what? It's a choice to abort. What does it mean to abort? It means to kill. To kill what? To kill a human being. So I think that's the the way to focus it. Uh, the the other little technique that Klusendorf uses is called trot out the toddler. So any 
any objection that comes, you say, well, what if this was a toddler that we're talking about? You know, talk about bringing a child into the world who's unwanted. Well, what about an unwanted toddler? Can you kill a toddler? No, you can't. What's the difference between killing a toddler and killing a baby that's inside the womb? So those are some angles that I come at it with. Yeah, that's really good. And encourage people to Google it. Maybe we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But the SLED acronym from Scott Klusendorf is really useful because science knows that life begins at conception. You know, the president may have forgotten that he said that or changed his mind for some reason, but people know life begins at conception. Uh, you know, you're two cells and you're multiplying and each of us, everyone listening to this, every human being, we are the, the, the same organism that began at that moment of conception. There, there wasn't that you know, five weeks or five months or five years outside of the womb, suddenly something else happened. There is an organic connection. I think also, you know, on a personal level, if we're talking to people, especially, you know, someone who's maybe considering it, or we're trying to help those in crisis pregnancy centers who may help those who are considering it. I think you, you try to project into the future and, help people realize it, what what might be, what do you think would be the bigger possibility of regret? That you would abort this child and be, be haunted with the decision for the rest of your life? Uh, and again, you, you put that in a way, you know, knowing the person you're talking to, I'm, I'm just speaking in sort of abstract terms. Or, you know, that seems like a very real possibility and actually likely versus you have a child in its difficult circumstances and 20 years from now as this child has grown up there is there is no chance virtually no chance you look and you say i wish this human being that i've cared for and loved had just never even come into existence there's just there's no chance for that the the abortion debate even though people trot out science it's not really about science. It's tied up with other sorts of personal, sociological, cultural issues. You often hear my body, my choice. It's often seen as uh, some dystopian handmaid's tale and men putting women in their place. But you look at the, you know, one quick rejoinder is you look at the polls, women are more opposed to abortion than than men are. So to to make it sound like, well, women are just all for this, and it's the men that are trying to control women's bodies. Actually, women feel even more strongly against it. And of course, the my body, my choice breaks down if it's another body inside your body. And we want to provide as churches, as institutions, the sort of institutional structure that can help women in genuine positions of vulnerability and need. So we take that seriously. But it does seem, at least on the just the political angle and the, the people cheering and, yay, let me say out loud and celebrate my abortion, it's tied to some vision of the family or lack thereof and some vision of what fulfilled womanhood looks like, that this is a way to be more fully liberated. And I think as, as men, 
part of what we have to do is say, you, you know who abortion is going to help a lot? Actually, men. It's going to help men to be uh, less responsible, men to have to take responsibility for that. So we want to fully exhort men who are half of the equation in uh, pregnancy, but often it's seen as something that is going to liberate women and to not have abortion legalized is somehow to put women in their place and send them back to the dark ages. What sort of thought or response would you have to that, Justin? Yeah, I think that, I mean, maybe it's not popular to say, but there is that desire to want to have the freedom to be just like a man. And I understand the existential angst of that reality that men can impregnate women and can just move on, can flee the relationship, can move out of state, can uh, act as if they have no responsibility. So, you know, trying to put myself inside the mind of a pro-abortion rights woman, I, I can understand that. And I think the re- the response there is not to make abortion legal, but to call men to fulfill their responsibilities. Uh, we want greater responsibility. We, we want there to be uh, babies conceived in wedlock and for men to be on the hook for uh, pregnancies that they create. So it, it is a difficult situation, and that's where the, the debate sometimes moves beyond just uh, a debate about biology and a debate about uh, kind of constitutional law, but women feeling like they are put in a position that's inherently unfair. And yet God created male and female and he created us differently and created our bodies to do different things. But uh, I think that men should be taking the lead and moving towards women in need and supporting women. Um, I I won't have it on my fingertips. Maybe we can throw it into the show notes if we can find it. But there was a, a woman one time who said, on Twitter. So those of you who are pro-life out there, tell me what have you done personally to help women in need or who have uh, conceived babies in difficult circumstances? And it's probably one of the most encouraging things on Twitter just to see tens of thousands of responses of people saying, well, here's what I am doing. And uh, I I think we need more of that sort of narrative to carry the day um, against the, the prevailing narrative that just makes all of us look bad. Right. So before we move to another topic, uh, some books that we might recommend. So Scott Klusendorf has uh, some really accessible books on the topic. So you can check out his. The the name of the one you guys did escapes me right at the moment. But uh, the case for life. Yes. Equipping Christians to engage the culture. Um, Francis Beckwith has uh, a book, a little more scholarly. I think is that called Defending Life. I read that one a number of years ago. Um, I've blogged before about Clark Forsyth's book on Roe v. Wade, and I just reposted that, Nine Myths. I was just trying to summarize his research, but Nine Myths about Roe v. Wade. Uh, and these myths are trotted out constantly. Number one, if uh, before Roe v. Wade, there were just tons of backroom, back alley abortions, coat hangers, women dying in the tens of thousands, utterly false, utterly false. Um, the myth that Roe was based on excellent, deep medical 
research. Also false. Like people have shown e even the very scant information that was put forward was uh, shown very quickly to be cribbed from other sources, not at all reputable. So that's a good book that I've used before if people want to populate these myths again. Uh, what are some of your go-to and do you have some works in the pipeline that Crossway's working on? Yeah, I mentioned earlier that Klusendorf is doing an updated edition of his book. So that'll be out um, before the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, I should mention Randy Alcorn's name too. Randy oh, yeah. mm -hmm. is is very sharp, very articulate, very passionate, has his own story of of putting his own financial well-being at stake in order to protest abortion. And um, I think that if you have people in your church or you're just wanting to get into this issue, Randy may be one of the best on-ramps. He, he has his own uh, internal perspective ministry website with lots of great articles and then little booklets. It's just he excels, I think, at accessibility and is a very good researcher as well. Um, on a more scholarly level, we've mentioned Robert P. George out of Princeton and, and guys like Patrick Lee writing books together on embryo. And uh, he he's just one of one of our best thinkers in terms of combining legal knowledge, philosophical sophistication, not making explicitly religious arguments, but more natural law arguments. Uh, a book we have coming out uh, at Crossway, again, end of 2022, beginning of 2023 in January, is Marvin Olasky with co-author Leah Savis uh, from World Magazine. Uh, the working title is Containing Abortion, 1629 to 2022, the years, uh, how Americans learned it was unsafe, struggled to make it illegal, and sometimes make it rare. So... Lord willing, that book will come out uh, and be able to document that Roe v. Wade was overturned. But Marvin Olasky uh, has probably written the the best social history of mm -hmm. abortion, and this is updating his work on that and, and taking it into uh, the 21st century, into 2022. So look for that. That's really good. I can't remember if I just read this in that first things, and maybe it was from Robbie George, but somebody made the astute observation that there's there's parallels between well there's parallels between slavery and abortion debates and issues and people have pointed that out before but i was reading you know the, the slavery in antebellum america you know at the beginning part of the 19th century there's definitely a sense even in the south certainly the upper south that yeah slavery's it's 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 not good, but yeah, we don't quite know how to get rid of it, and it's it's decreasing, and it's probably on its way out. And an acknowledgement that this is really not ideal, at, at, certainly, and maybe even some people say it's wrong, but no one they don't quite have the you know the moral courage to do something about it. But that really changes when you get to the 1840s, 1850s, lead up to the Civil War. That now there are strong apologists, that this is really essential to our way of life. This is really a better way of organizing society. And your way, uh, capitalism in the North is, is, is more benighted. And it takes on a vociferous defense of something. And you can, 
in a general sketch, you know, look back at Clinton's famous phrase, safe, legal, and rare, you know, an acknowledgement in the 90s among Democrats, at least that president, that this is not ideal. This is not what we want, but let's let's try to make it so it's, it's least access to it and it's legal. Okay, that, that's their position. You would be hard-pressed to find people on that side wanting to say safe, legal, and rare because even that last word rare suggests it's probably not ideal and at best. And now you have, let's celebrate our abortions and the infamous scene of what the New York legislature, you know, resounding in applause when they pass these pro-abortion bills and people in marches with women's anatomy on their heads. And it's it's taken on, uh, even in our half a lifetime, such a different pall. And I, 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 you know, I fear you know, the Lord looking upon us in that. Certainly we have many, many sins as a country. And it seems cliche to say that abortion is different, but it really, I mean, if, if it's a life and we've established it's a life, there is no other issue in our contemporary culture or politics, that no matter how bad things are, where a, a whole lot of people are saying that life does not deserve to live. Even if you take the most, you know, e- extreme examples of other sorts of injustice and and don't put any caveats around it, you still have everyone, most everyone saying, well, that's not good. We just disagree about what we're seeing. This with abortion is so different. And if the Lord is gracious and we see a change in our laws and in our hearts in this country, no doubt we would look back and say, what were we thinking that we have laws? The only places that have laws as extreme are places like China and North Korea that have laws as permissive and as extreme as we do in the United States. So that's there, there's the end of my little sermon. No, I, I think you're 100% right. And it, and it somehow it, th- it thrives in euphemism and it also thrives, I think, in secrecy that if it was somehow more out in the open, and that's why there are people who advocate, you know, showing pictures and saying we, we need to uh, open the casket, as it were, and to show what what's going on here. I mean, if, if there's no morally relevant difference between a toddler and a fetus, what would we be thinking if there were 50 million toddlers who had been killed, 60 million toddlers who have been killed? I mean, we, we wouldn't talk about anything else that would lead the news every night. Uh, and yet it's it's different. It's in secret. We don't see it and we don't talk about it. And I think ultimately at a spiritual level, we don't want to be aware of uh, the sort of crime and injustice against humanity and ultimately against God. Uh, so may he be merciful upon our country. I remember one of Piper's sermons on abortion, and he was taking from the line at Jesus' trial, you have said so. Uh, and he was he was playing off of that to say, just like at Jesus' trial, his, his opponents, they, they knew, they knew, and they didn't want to acknowledge what they could see and what 
they knew. And so it is with, with abortion. You have said so. And I've often thought of that, that we don't want to look at what this is and what it entails. So perhaps that's a good segue to talk about something that you and I have talked about many times, and Colin's been in on this conversation, and so have a number of our friends. And I'm going to frame the the question in a way that's probably the first thing we want to say is that's not a good way to frame the question. But just to get the question out there, there's it, it, are the problems facing the church in 2021, are they primarily, we're all going to agree they're both, but are they primarily the biggest threat facing the church is a secular liberalizing ethos outside the church? Or are the biggest problems facing the church our own hypocrisy, sinfulness, perhaps threats from the right within the church? And you do see among people who agree on many formal statements of theology and faith, you see it play out online and we see it play out in our own lives, uh, just very different instincts on whether what we should be most concerned about right now is the march of a aggressively liberal, hyper-woke, cancel culture, catechizing the church, or is it, well, of course we don't like that, but is it really the threat is our own unfaithfulness, our own lack of integrity, our own unwillingness to see our own sins, and that's the danger of young people leaving the church because they see how much we failed to live up to our own Christian values and beliefs. Obviously, the short answer is both of those are evident in places, but how would you answer that question, Justin, or maybe you want to start by framing the question in a different way? No, I understand the framing of the question, and yeah, it it is one of those that come down to how you define your terms and what context you're talking about, but I I think that the the main point is still clear. Uh, Where should our focus be, and what are we most suspicious of, and what are we kind of working against. And I think that some of the answer to that, and of course I'm more interested to hear what you would say versus what I would say, but who are we talking about is maybe one of my first questions. So, I mean, you could start at the the broadest level, let's say global Christendom, because it's sort of work into concentric circles from there. Uh, you know, we talk about the American church, and then we can make that smaller, the American Protestant evangelical church, and then can think about my own uh, denomination or my own church network, and, and finally down to my own local church. The, the whole point of just mentioning that is that I think that the answer can actually be different for, say, my local church versus evangelicalism at large. Uh, I think that it's somewhat context dependent. So if I have a church that is located near a university and uh, lots of college students coming in and it's a public university, there may be challenges there in terms of our own body life together and the sort of things that we have to address that may be different than 
uh, a, a more rural congregation than a smaller town. Uh, it may be different depending upon your denominational affiliation. You know, the, the sort of things that a Southern Baptist church might be dealing with could be quite different than an OPC church in the, the Northeast. So I'm not trying to just punt it down the road, but I, I, I do think that it's somewhat context dependent and can have different answers, different legitimate answers. We're all going to agree that it's both. I mean, both are problematic, but one might be more problematic based upon your own cultural situation, denominational situation, ecclesiastical makeup than another one. So now that uh, I I punted, you give us the real answer and then I can interact (laughs) with it. Well, it... You know, it, to state the obvious, it's no secret if people read what I what I write, they would say, "Well, Kevin, I think you are trying to trying to acknowledge both of those fears and dangers, but you seem to write more about the the dangers from the left." Or, you know, I I, I wrote a piece recently on the culture catechizing us with the rainbow flag and sexuality, so that's true. And I, I try to be honest with myself and why do I see that and what do I see and try to acknowledge the, the other set of problems and, and try to do that in a way that doesn't, I, I don't want to just be throat clearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all know that that's, but there's nothing really to talk about there. There's, there's millions of Christians. There's thousands and tens of thousands of churches, even in this country so in having this conversation, surely one of the places to start is to say, I acknowledge on either side how you come at this, to say to our friends, whatever the other side is, I acknowledge that there's no doubt that there's would be plenty of evidence for you to draw to see things the way that you see things. And uh, we don't want to pretend that, no, there's... There's no threat from the left or, you know what, none of our churches ever have integrity problems or never sweeps in under the rug or we never act hypocritical. Of course, all of those things are happening. And then maybe it's helpful to make sure we don't deal with caricatures in either direction. You know, sometimes, you know, take CRT, for example, not Carl Truman. You know, those are his initials. I always have to think, why is everyone, what did Carl do? But critical race theory, there are characters in both ways. There's a caricature from the right. Hey, you t- you're talking about justice and you're saying that there may be lingering effects of Jim Crow that have yet to be eradicated. That's critical race theory. Well, that's just a showstopper. That's just a conversation ender. Uh, you don't have to have critical race theory to say any of those things. Uh, on the other hand, I do sometimes hear a very dismissive sort of, you know, your local Baptist conservative Presbyterian church, you know, if you think that people in your churches are picking up um, Delgado or whoever, and they're reading all of the critical race theorists, you're kidding yourselves. They're not reading that stuff. Well, yeah, that's not exactly the argument that the rank and file person is is passing around um, primary source CRT material, though I do think that does happen in, in some churches. But the argument rather is these sorts of ideas and ways of looking at the world and, and 
pitting people into groups of oppressor versus oppressed, seeing racism as uh, systemic and everywhere rather than perhaps lessening and more isolated. The, and you can argue about the, the certain tenets of CRT, but it's you, you can be influenced by those ideas without having people in your church know that they're influenced by those ideas. So I think it's a character if we just sort of set aside and say, look, all of your people, they're not reading this stuff, so therefore it's not a real threat. Uh, I, just a few other thoughts, Justin, and I'll, I'll see what you want to agree or disagree with. Certainly, uh, you know, just generations, that's going to make a difference. Are we talking about uh, 60 and 70-year-olds who may watch traditional right-wing media and they're picking up on that and there's there's not a danger of them you know they they still have enough cultural memory of what life was like and church was like and america was like that they're not in danger of adopting these other ideologies and maybe they need to be pressed on some other ways love of neighbor or dangers of conflating america with the kingdom of god whereas if we're talking about younger generations, uh, the dangers might be in a different direction. And what prompted this discussion that that you and I had with some of our friends several weeks ago was just thinking about my oldest going off to college and hearing from friends and others what many of these colleges are like. And, and that's an objective fact, not just many, but the overwhelming, unless you're going to a college or a university that distinctively says you know, either we are conservative, uh, you know, politically like Hillsdale or something, or we are distinctively uh, robustly evangelical and Christian. The default of all the other hundreds and hundreds of colleges and university is you're going to find this stuff. And it's not just you're going to find it, it's going to find you. And often it's going to present itself to you that either you bow down to this you wear this flag, you wear this shirt, you do this thing, you march in this thing, or else you're not really a part of our polite society. And that that's that's a real danger. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that uh, that's not going to be the overwhelming mainstream cultural pressure. Just if you're watching movies, listening to music, watching TV shows, the David Wells quote, I always trot out, Whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange, that's going to be in the broader culture. Now, your point, Justin, is maybe there's a culture within your own ecosystem or church that has made, you know, abusive behavior look normal or hiding sin look normal, and that may be the case for sure. Writ large, our society is giving us one sort of message about what sin is and what righteousness looks like. Uh, last thing, I got a lot of thoughts, but just last thing I mentioned to you the other day, Justin, maybe some small way forward as Christians disagree about what they see and what their suspicions are and where the slope is slipperiest is to state things positively. When we just are uh, chiding one another, why don't you get your act together? This is the biggest problem of the church. 
it, we, we, we instinctively bristle and we feel defensive. Whereas I think if, if we were putting more positively, here's our vision for healthy church. Here's our vision for what good godly pastors look like. They're doctrinally formed. They're ethically formed. They're formed by good Christian discipleship, mature understanding of themselves and others, then I think there's more agreement on the positive issue. And sometimes when we just look at it and want to make sure everyone agrees on the criticisms we're seeing, it can be harder to find some agreement. So I got other thoughts. That's enough of a soliloquy. Um, What do you want to say yes, no, amen to, Justin? Yeah, I think you and I would have both agree that at the end of the day, the solution is going to be the same. Preach the word, pray, disciple, catechize. It's going to have different forms, perhaps, in terms of application. But also think we need to remember judgment begins at home, uh, inside the church, and we move outside. And so it's going to require wisdom. It's also going to require, I think, not living by anecdote alone. So you and I each have friends. One one friend might say, I get calls every week from pastors talking about the threats coming from the right. Another friend get calls every week about the challenges coming from the left that I'm, I'm trying to talk pastors through. And both are true. We need to not live by anecdote alone, but try to uh, see what the state of the church is and, and try to move beyond just our own personal experience because it's so tempting to take personal experiences and then extrapolate that upon all churches and all pastors and all situations. And it's rarely the case. So at the end of the day, the answer is both. And then context dependent, I think it's going to depend on uh, where we're at and what, uh, what the call of the hour is in our particular context as we speak and minister. And it is one of the challenges uh, with our digital age is we, we, we see everything and we see everything from everywhere. And uh, I used to think that, uh, well, you can explain this person's view and this person's view because of where they're situated. And if you were uh, in a conservative Baptist situation or if you were in New York City, you'd be different. But I don't think that's the case anymore because we can we can find online plenty of evidence, anecdotes, arguments to reinforce how we already see things. So you could, you could put me, I mean, maybe I'm sure something would change, but you could put most people, you could put them in rural Alabama, you could put them in in Manhattan, you could put them in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, you could put one sort of person in San Francisco who says, this is why we need to be pushing so hard back against the left because uh, Brothers, I'm living it. It's right here. It's on our doorstep. And someone else might say in that very same spot, well, this is why we need to build bridges because they have so many stereotypes and they see all these things. And if we don't lead with love, we're never going to win a hearing. And both of those things could be true. Uh, and, and so maybe this is putting you know, my cards a little bit on the, the side of the secularizing militant left. Uh, seeing that as uh, a concern, greater concern, I don't know. But I do think it's the case that we have thought for a while that 
if we that we can out nice their flank and if we if we just double down on what great people we are and we're not causing a ruckus and we're not causing trouble and we really really are going to be your your best neighbors in the whole world of course we want to be the best neighbors and with some folks that will you know that's what we want to do to adorn the gospel full stop if we think as a grand cultural strategy that is going to prove sufficient. Uh, now, I don't know what does prove sufficient other than we pray and we live like Christians and we preach the gospel. So I, I don't I don't have an answer that leads to 20 years from now, you know, everything looks better. But I do think, in particular with younger generations, sometimes feel like I if I keep my head down and I'm really, really nice, I'll be able to skate through. And that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen in your workplace. That's not going to happen with the way online works. You And if you, it will buy you a few extra minutes than your friend down the road. But eventually, if you say, no, I think we don't just choose our biological gender. It's It's given to us and it's a gift from God and it's not mutable. And I think that not all forms of sexual desire and fulfillment are pleasing to God or good for human flourishing. Uh, and no, I'm not going to like your post about love is love or with the rainbow flag. Man, at that point, no matter how much of a great guy or woman you are, you're going to get buried and we need to help our people to be prepared for that. Yeah. I, and, the two poster boys in this example, I think, is Max Lucado and Louis Giglio. I mean, you, you criticize them for various things. Nobody has ever said that those are not nice men. They're just kind, gentle. Culture warrior has never been their stuff. No, and no. and yet both of them have been canceled for giving hate-filled sermons on homosexuality that were delivered years ago. And yeah, you're you're not going to nice your way out of the culture war. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll come back to that sometime when we have Colin who can uh, set us all straight. Right. So he will have thoughts. He he has he has thoughts, theories, even one of the things we talked about before. We'll just do this quickly and then we'll finish with some books. But you and I, thankfully, agree on most things, which is really good because we're both right. So it's good that we can we can see that. One thing that we we disagree on, and it may not be a weightier matter of the law, but we've talked before about this television series, The Chosen, about the life of Jesus, and uh, we'll just it, it's a lot of people love it, and some people have questions about it. I have increasingly got questions from people, pastor or professor, what what what's your take on The Chosen? It's uh. Unlike other version, other attempts at this, there's high production value. There's good acting. Um, it's it's entertaining to watch. Uh, it it is trying to present uh, faithful to the biblical storyline. So I have my reasons for being not in favor of it, and you have some reasons for thinking, yeah, it's basically a good thing. So we don't have to do a lot of back and forth, but just our listeners can listen and they can discern for themselves and at least get, um, what, what's your, you know, elder Justin Taylor, uh, my family is watching The Chosen 
every Sunday night. Is that a good thing? Should we be doing that? What say you? Yeah, I think that it is a good thing on balance. Uh, Anything, I think, that gets us thinking about the biblical Christ, I think, is a good thing. And I think that it should always have governors around it. And we probably, the, the more people get into it, the more we need to remind them that there is only one authoritative account and uh, it doesn't have special effects. And one of the things about The Chosen is they do some creative storylines and I don't think do anything contrary to scripture, but fill in some details. I mean, it it doesn't take reading the Bible very long to realize the Bible's oftentimes not interested in going into a lot of details. You know, they don't say, hey, here's some background on this person. Here's the sort of lifestyle that they grew up in or the challenges that they faced as a boy. So as a storyteller, sometimes you you have that liberty to uh, come up with backstories. Um, I mean, maybe a, a more interesting discussion would be the, I think it's called Luma series that does the the gospels and there's literally no dialogue other than the gospel. I mean, what, what's in the text? So there's no creative storylines there. It's still depicting Jesus, which is one thing that I don't know if you want to get into that we I do. disagree with a little bit. All right. Well, go for it. What's what's the the problem with depicting Jesus? Is it more theological, exegetical for you, or is it more practical uh, in terms of the the dangers on the ground as a pastor? So it's both, and uh, you know, th- this is not front and center in my sermons or or ministry, and so I, I'm sure that whether it's this series uh, you just mentioned or it's The Chosen or back in the day, the the Jesus film, which I assume is still being passed out in evangelistic settings. Uh, do I do I question that people are genuinely helped by this, drawn into the scriptures, uh, that God has done good things? Uh, yeah, I, I acknowledge that. So my concerns are on both of those levels you mentioned. So on the direct theological and this is uh, you know, stronger in the Westminster tradition than in others, and it's there in the larger catechism. And you know, a number of ministerial candidates will take some level of, a, of exception to the, the Westminster's strong stance against images of Jesus. And part of it is because it says even mental images of Jesus. That's hard to completely put a, a governor on. But I do think it is telling that we don't know what Jesus looked like. And uh, you could say in a way that Jesus, the incarnation, quote, broke the second commandment. Okay, I get that. And I, I get the danger of thinking of a docetic Jesus. He wasn't really human, and could we really see him? So I understand those concerns. And yet to present Jesus in realistic terms— I think is a is a violation of making image. You're, you're showing God, I mean, the, the the Son of God, and there's only one way that the Son of God wished to be seen, and we can't see that right now. And so, uh, we've talked about this before. I think the danger is. I think that theological danger is actually greater with the series like The Chosen or the Jesus film. I think it's less in more abstract pieces of art or 
you know, I think the great the danger is greater in children's books that try to present cartoonish Jesus than in books that you know present obviously more abstract. You know, so I'm thinking of the you know the biggest story storybook Bible coming out, and there's going to be some pictures of Jesus. It's hard to do 400 pages without ever showing Jesus, but it's it's you know he's he's green and he said no, you're not thinking that's what these people really looked like. I think there's less of a danger for that. And maybe that's where I'm not as hardcore as some of my Presbyterian friends would be. So you have that showing God. He came in the flesh. We don't know what he looked like. We don't have that. Then there's the the practical sort of existential, uh, and it's connected to the first, that I, I, I worry that a steady diet of that becomes very hard not in your to, to not form in your mind's eye. Well, that is what what Jesus looks like. The famous Walter Salmon, you know, painting of of Jesus, of course, very you know, you know, Anglo or Teutonic or something looking, and of course, that's not accurate. And I don't think it's wrong to present pictures, you know, to depict Jesus as different cultural settings. And yet, if you grow up with that in your Sunday school around your dinner table, it's hard not to then, when you close your eyes and you're thinking of, you know, praying in Jesus' name, that that picture comes in. And that's mistaken. And with with a series like The Chosen, in order to, the Gospels don't make good TV because they're not interested by and large in the things that good stories are interested in. That sounds well, it's the greatest. It's the greatest story ever told. Well, it is, but you know, think about the crucifixion. There, there's details, but it, it never focuses on, you know, Mel Gibson like the the utter pain of it. It's on the shame and it's on the sin. And to present compelling artistry and entertainment and television or movies, you have to do a lot of character development. You have to do a lot of what's going on inside. You have to presume a lot of things with. And you have to have the lighting and the music. All of those are telling a story. And I guess my, my contention is they're not as negligible as we think. They're, they actually are very essential in telling and making the story. And they begin to shape us and disciple us. Every music crescendo, every close-up, every sort of left, they're, they're shaping us as to what the stories were like. I don't, am, am I concerned that Justin Taylor or some of our you know are watching an episode and all of a sudden they they can't do good exegesis? No, but I think if that's your diet of Jesus, even if you're a great reader of the Bible, I think it just can't help but form and shape the way you think about him and the way you understand those stories. And all of those elements are extra biblical, even if they're trying to be faithful to the general thrust of it. Uh, I remember uh, I wrote a paper. This is the sort of person I am. I wrote a paper in seminary against the Jesus film. And one of the the lines I remember from there is people were reflecting, you know, it's like seeing Jesus. And, and there's another, he's, you know, just giving the gospel. Uh, is it Luke that they use? Uh, it's like seeing Jesus in real life. Well, no, it's not. It's a, it's a British actor who's there portraying Jesus. And I, I, think in evangelistic settings, it's particularly dangerous. You've, you, you're, you, it's one thing for people like us 
who have been around it our whole lives to then see it and have the grid to interpret it. But in an evangelistic setting, how can you not help but think, well, that that's the person. That's who it is. That's uh, even if they tell me it's just a movie, that's sort of the, the shape and how I understand this Jesus to be. So I, I think there are real dangers in that. All right. I've, I've given my eight minute sermon here and I will give you the final word. Uh, my friends have told me on the podcast, when I say you get the last word, I always then say something afterwards. So I'll, I'll actually let you respond to that and we'll be done with it. Are the rumors true that you actually went on some mission trips and uh, handed out copies of your paper before the team got there and showed the Jesus? <laughs> yes. And then we, uh, many thousands came to know the Lord that way. <laughs> uh, I, I think that there, you make a lot of legitimate points and, I think that it's more compelling when you talk about the the practical ramifications in terms of some of the drawbacks, because we, by and large, especially outside of confessional Presbyterian reform circles, tend not to think about any of the drawbacks of these things, only think about what it, how it aids us. And, and yet I would say, I think that there's a continuum. So every pastor who has preached on Easter Sunday and goes into any level of uh, creative meditation, embellishment, uh, thinking through different aspects of what must it have been like for our Savior, is doing something that goes beyond strictly the text. There's a form of creativity and a form of meditation, uh, and yet we need to be careful about it. And so, you know, do audio Bibles that put music behind the, the reading, and there, there's an interpretive effect. Uh, the the Bible narrator. We're talking about just about audio at this point, but there's an interpretive level there that's that's trying to go into emotion. So, I would find it hard to just be strictly black and white and just it's an all or nothing. I think we can be aware of the dangers. And on the theological side, I'm less convinced that uh, it's it's problematic to depict in any form the humanity of Jesus. I think the disciples have memories of Jesus, and they saw him in their memory. Uh, is it wrong for them to have had mental images of Jesus? If it's not wrong to have mental images, would it have been wrong for them to sketch something? I don't think the Shroud of Turin is probably uh, legitimate, but it, it seems like a good Westminsterian uh, confessionalist would have to burn the the Shroud of Turin because there there may have been an image of uh, the Christ on there. So if you uh, saw Jesus, you can have an, a picture of him in your head. Yeah. We'll grant are, that if you've seen him in person. They get an exception when they take their vows, right? Well, it wasn't written for the apostles, so. All right, that's that's those are that, those are good points, and uh, I have other thoughts, but I did say you have the last word. So this is the 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 final thing. Talk about books. Uh, we talked about lots of different categories of books and some of our favorites and most influential. Give me two or three books that you've loved. Let's let, let's stipulate Christian books, edifying Christian books that aren't on everybody's top ten list, or you know the the J.I. Packer, the John Piper, the Tim Keller, the Calvin, the Bavink. So, do you have two or three that? you found, and they don't have to be world-changing, but you think, wow, those were really helpful, and I don't hear people talking about them, and it'd be worth 
mentioning? Yeah, two or three come to mind. Um, one of them is Robert Gundry's commentary on the New Testament. So the the subtitle is Verse by Verse Explanations with a Literal Translation. And Robert Gundry is a retired New Testament professor. He was actually the guy that John Piper uh, was responding to him on the imputation of Christ and the act of obedience of Christ. Uh, he did a commentary on the entire New Testament, translated the entire Greek New Testament into kind of a literal translation, and then just offers commentary on it. And it has been one of the best resources I've found. Uh, Hendrickson put it out, and Baker, I, I don't know what the backstory is on the, the book. I think it may be coming out now in two volumes, but it is one of those that if you're doing uh, devotions on your own or you're getting ready to teach something or you preach something, it's always worth consulting. He's, he's very concise and very helpful. Uh, another book that comes to mind, just a completely different genre, is by Greg Lucas, uh, Wrestling with an Angel. A Story of Love, Disability, and the Lessons of Grace. Cruciform put out this book several years ago, and I was honored to do a little endorsement for it. And you probably haven't heard of Greg Lucas. He's a, a police officer in West Virginia who has a son. Uh, Jake was 17 years old, I think, when he wrote it and is an adult now. Uh, but just talking through disability and our uh second youngest son, Zephaniah, has cerebral palsy and is not verbal and is uses a wheelchair and a walker. So just listening to a theologically oriented, Christ-centered father writing about raising a son with disabilities was just very moving to me and encouraging to me. So there would be somebody who's, you know, Greg's not uh, lighting up the world in terms of the conference speaking circuit. The book was undoubtedly not a bestseller, but uh, a quiet, faithful book that I really appreciated. And maybe just to pluck one from the the theology realm, uh, Bruce Milne's little book, uh, Tell the Truth, um, just summarizing compactly doctrine. Books like uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, you know, far surpass that in terms of uh, reception and sales. But that, that's a, a beautiful little book that I've appreciated over the years and uh, worth going back to if you're thinking about something theologically. So those are two or three that come to mind. Those are good. I, I knew I was going to ask the question and I didn't take enough time to peruse my bookshelves and come up with all the answers. So I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting books that I've read. So much of the books that we love are when we re read them, did we read them, and they just hit right at that moment what we needed to hear, or we read them when we were new Christians or really growing in our faith, and it became a go-to book. I sometimes have those books, and I think, that's not a go-to book for you. I've always go back to it because it was when I read it. Uh, a, a few things. There's a book called True Devotion by Alan... Chapel, Chappelle, I think uh, it's published by uh, an Anglican publishing house, and I think he's Australian. It's called In Search of Authentic Spirituality, and uh, it's uh, yeah, published by, what, Latimer something? Latimer House in England? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it. But uh, True Devotion, I've used this for a staff book before. Latimer Trust is what it is. It came out in 2014. I was in the UK one time and heard William Taylor, who's at St. Helens and his friend of mine, and he was introducing me and he said how much he liked 
what is the mission of the church? And he said, I had our whole staff book go through staff go through it. And he said, that's the second best book I've had our staff read. So I had to say, Oh, well, that was nice. What was the first book? And he said, well, sorry, it's the book, uh, this book by Alan Chapel, true devotion in search of authentic spirituality. And, uh, it's, it, it's a look at evangelical spirituality. It, it goes after some of the Richard Foster ways of doing spirituality and it goes back to the Bible, but also to the reformers, to the Puritans, and and says some of the things that we take for default evangelical spirituality uh, were, were actually not in our forefathers and mothers. And simple things like prayer is a conversation where I speak to God and then I listen to God. He says, no, they said prayer is you speaking to God. The Bible is you listening to God. So it's the sort of book uh, well opens people's eyes. People may not agree with it, but I found that to be helpful. Uh, there's a, also a book just sticking with Aussie's wisdom and leadership. I've mentioned before, published I think Matthias Media. Uh, Hamilton is the author, and uh, it's a big, thick book, and it's lots of chapters on leadership. And you know, he says they're they're the pastors who read. John Stott and D.A. Carson and their pastors who read Bill Hybels, you know, it's dated. They, they might not do that anymore. And the leadership stuff. And he's trying to say, hey, I'm this guy who wants to read Carson and Stott, but we have something to learn from thinking about. With it, it, The book's too long, but it's got lots of chapters that's really practical and helpful for leaders in the church. And then a book, maybe I mentioned before when we were talking about fiction books, I don't read a lot of fiction but uh, Walter Weingren's book, The Book of the Dun Cow, uh, I, I was surprised how much I liked it. I had my wife read it, and she was sort of, meh, I, I don't know, why, why did you like this so much? But I, I found it captivating and, and moving. And uh, last one is sort of cheating because people have heard of G.K. Chesterton, but I think if they've read Chesterton, they've read Orthodoxy and... I think my favorite book of his might be The Everlasting Man. It's not the easiest read. I'm having our staff go through it and, right now. And I think they're thinking, why did you have us read this book? Uh, he's he's a very witty writer. He's very aphoristic in the way he writes, which can be good and bad. But he's really looking at the the sweep of the history of man and the history of Christ. And uh, it's over, it's almost 100 years old and it's, just very relevant still today. So that's a, a book by an author people probably heard of, but maybe haven't read that book. Any last word, Mr. Beat Sparty? Go Huskers. All right. Well, give us a, a prediction and let's, should we put something on uh, on the line for this prediction? I can't eat Little Caesars anymore, but. What's a good uh, gluten-free product uh, like? A good gluten-free product. Uh, how about five guys? They're they're. I can get there. All right. So we'll. Do we'll, I have to pay for your entire family to go, or just you? Yeah, it's over a hundred dollars for our entire family. Just me. Okay, we'll put a five guys all you can eat meal plus the peanuts, which are back. And uh, if it, so I'm going to say, Sparty, uh, thirty-eight, Nebraska. 31. What say you? First numbers that came to my mind were 3521 Huskers. Okay. All right. You heard it here first. Thank you, Justin. Always appreciate talking to you, my friend. Until next time, 
Glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book.